The scripture reading for today uh, will be from the book of Lamentations. Um, it'll be chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Lamentations, chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. This is the word of, of our God. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in the midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. 
Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day that you announced, and now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Colton. Well, uh, like I said, and like you see, uh, we are starting a, uh, a new series uh, in, in Lamentations. And um, I should tell you in advance that it's going to be a little bit intense and, and a bit tedious. And, and even as we read that long passage, it might have seemed a bit intense and a bit tedious. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because what's, what's happening right now in Jerusalem is really intense. And, and it'll be tedious because to understand what's happening, we, we, we need to do a little work to figure out the, the, the context. Uh, I, I enjoy movies and TV shows. That, you know, every now and then you'll, you'll start a series and it'll start like in the middle of a chase. You know, somebody's running and you don't know what's, what's happening uh, and there's just chaos going on. And then all of a sudden, it changes to a scene, and it says, you know, three months earlier, and it's real peaceful. And it seems like they're always cooking breakfast somewhere, right? Everything's just chill and cool. And the rest of the story is like, okay, well, so we, we know this intense scene is happening, and then at this moment, it was peaceful. So how do we get from A to B? And so that's what I want to do today with, with Lamentations, um, uh, because it's, it's one of those things, and it's kind of hard to find. It's between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You know, it's not, it's not really a, a super famous one, um, but I think it's good for us to go into in this day. But I think to understand it, we're, we're going to have to do uh, a little bit of maybe the, the tedious work of understanding the, the background of, of how we got to this point in Lamentations. So the, the introductory scene in Lamentation is a picture of Jerusalem. And it was once this thriving city, and now it's, it's somewhat of a dumpster fire, right? And in Lamentations 1.1, we read this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. So this once thriving city has, has somehow gone from glory to shame. And, and, and how did this happen? Because when we're talking about Jerusalem and Israel, these are God's chosen people in God's chosen place. And it's not the beginning of this. It's not like he, he just chose them and brought them here in the beginning and they kind of have a hard time getting started. No, he's, he's been there with them for a long time, giving them a lot of victories. And somehow things have gone terribly bad. And so, and so to, in, in order to understand what's happening in Lamentations, what I want to do three things. 
I want to do this. I, I want to give a quick review going from Genesis to Jeremiah. It, it will be quick. I think it will at least. And then, uh, and then I want to talk about Jeremiah for a little bit. Secondly, I want to talk about Jeremiah. That's the book before Lamentations. And then lastly, I'll probably spend the least time today on, on Lamentations 1. But I think it's important for us to get this context in order to understand what's happening. So first, let's get the story from, from Genesis to Jeremiah. And this might be painful because many of you know this story. But it'll be good for us to reconsider this slow process leading up what God's intentions were and why... <laughs> why it's such a big deal that Jerusalem is in the state that it's in in Lamentations 1. So, Genesis to Jeremiah. Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the world and everything in it. He he creates an image of himself. Uh, Adam gives him a helper, Eve, and tells him to expand numerically, or to, to increase numerically and expand geographically and to rule the world. They're to rule the world, his image bearers, all over the planet. But Satan deceives them, and he, a uh, man decides to go uh, his own independent, ambitious way to do his own thing. So uh, God puts them under a curse, uh, and he plans to restore uh, his original plan for the world with his uh, sinless image bearers all over the world. And he decides to do that by, by choosing a nation to redeem the world through. And, and so what he does, kind of like in creation, where he created something out of nothing— he, he creates a nation where there's nothing. So how do you create a nation where there's nothing? Well, he chose this old man and woman, this, this, this older couple who could not have children, and he promised them that he would make a great nation, that they would have a child in their old age, uh, and that, this, that, that this, their, their descendants would go on to be many, and that he was going to give them land. So this, old, this older barren couple was going to have many descendants, and they were going to have land, and they were going to be a nation. And, and God's plan to redeem the, the world was going to happen through this nation. So miraculously, God chooses Abraham and Sarah, this older couple. They have a son, Isaac. They have a son, Jacob. God changes his name to Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. So one issue this family had is that they had this brother, uh, one of the sons' name was Joseph, and all the other brothers hated Joseph. And so they had it worked out to where they sold him into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt, in slavery. A lot of stuff happens. He becomes second in command uh, in the land of Egypt. And then years later, there's a famine throughout the world at that time. And so uh, Joseph, in kind of in a miraculous dream, vision God gave him, foresaw this. And so all the people, uh, all the world was kind of coming to Egypt to get relief. And so J- or Israel's family, the 12 and his other 11 sons, they go to Egypt for relief to find food. And uh, Joseph doesn't take vengeance on them. Instead, he shows kindness to them. And then all of Israel, all of uh, Jacob, who's Israel, all his sons move to Egypt. And they're there for, for hundreds of years. And as they're there, they become very numerous. They become, a, 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 they become um, many. And uh, the, the rulers in Egypt get nervous about this big nation that's, that's rising up. And so they enslave them. And so Israel is enslaved for, for hundreds of years. And they cry out for help. God sends a deliverer, Moses, uh, to, to bring them out of Egypt. And y'all know the story. Miraculously, he brings them out of Egypt. And on the way, when, when they're going from Egypt, because they've become many, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people in Israel, but they don't have the land. And so they're going from Egypt 
to the land. And on the way between A and B, between being in Egypt enslaved and going to the land that's promised to them, God gives them the law, right? Like, like the Ten Commandments. But turn to Deuteronomy 28, and I want you to see part of the law that he gives them. Because again, in order to understand lamentations, we, we need to understand where they're coming from. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God gives them a law. And he's going to say, if you, uh, if you look at the title probably in Deuteronomy 28, it says blessings and curses. So if they're going to be blessed, if they uh, obey God's commands, they're going to be cursed if they don't. So look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 and 2. It says this, 28, 1 and 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So things will go well with them if they obey. Now look at 28 verse 15. Verse 15 says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So they're going to be cursed if they don't keep his commands. And part of that curse we see in verse 36 and 37, also in Deuteronomy 28. So let's look at 28, verse 36 and 37. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So, so remember that, because that's going to explain what's happening in Lamentations. So, so Israel eventually arrives to the promised land, uh, and everything goes, goes really bad for them once they get there. It's just, uh, it, it goes, it's just, I'll just say it goes badly. Eventually, they get a king named Saul, uh, and, and it doesn't go well with King Saul. After him, they get King David. He's probably the best king uh, that Israel ever had, but he had some serious flaws as well. After David, you have Solomon, and that's where Israel peaked. That, that's where, to describe it the way they did in Lamentations 1, they, they become great among the nations. They have great wealth. They have peace with their enemies. And all is, is kind of right in the world. That's, that's, that's as good as it gets for Israel during, during this time. But then after Solomon, the, the nation of Israel splits in two. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is known as Israel and the southern kingdom as Judah. And neither kingdom does very well. The northern kingdom does a bit worse, though, okay? And then the, the, the southern kingdom uh, falls. First, the northern kingdom would be captured by Assyria. So Israel is, is conquered by Assyria. And then about 100 years later, Judah would be conquered by Babylon. And God warned his people in Deuteronomy, look, if you turn away from me, there's going to be another nation that's going to come in. It's going to take you out. And this happened, right? This happened first with Israel, the northern kingdom, and then secondly with Judah, the southern kingdom. And so there's a sense where you could sympathize, like, well, maybe it was kind of in the fine print of this ancient text years ago, but, but God did more than that. He sent, them, he sent Judah, a prophet, to say what God has said will happen is going to happen, and you need to repent. And so that's how we get to Jeremiah. This is the context of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is coming in to, to explain what God intends to do. So as my second point. So there, there's Genesis to Jeremiah. Now let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is raised up to warn Judah about Babylon because they're coming to fulfill God's purpose 
to, to, to destroy them and to bring them into exile. So go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter one. And look, I, I know this is tedious. It might feel like class right now, but there's a sense where I feel like in, in order to understand limitations, we got to do the, the tedious background work uh, and make sure we, we have our bearing set. So turn to Jeremiah chapter one, and we're going to look at, at Jeremiah's call. So Jeremiah chapter one, and let's look at 11 through 16. Jeremiah one, verse 11 through 16. All right, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. So the, the meaning there with the almond branch, the almond branch was the first tree to bud in the spring. And so the, the idea of th this vision means that something's about to happen. Something's about to come. Now, moving on to verse 13 says this, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? He said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. So this is the fun message that Jeremiah gets to preach to Judah, right? And, and look, and even this is a hard message for him to preach. But beyond that, there's other people in Jeremiah's time that were a lot more pleasant, that, that they were a lot more understanding of the culture and what people wanted to hear. They probably talked more about the love of God, the grace of God, more accepting, and they weren't quite as judgmental and harsh as Jeremiah was. And here's what Jeremiah says about in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13 to 14. It says this, Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest... Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Beware of preachers, of authors, of Christians who are doggedly committed to God's love and God's grace to the exclusion of God's judgment. They emphasize that God is happy with you just the way you are. This is what false prophets and false teachers say. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God is happy with you just the way you are. Now, let me clarify this a little bit, because there's something about the gospel that does speak that to us. For those who are in Christ who put their trust in the work of Christ, who've repented from their sins and turned to Christ, we cannot be more righteous than we already are because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. So our righteousness isn't located in our performance or how good we might be. Our righteousness is located in the work of Christ. So we can't improve on that. And then also we're no longer under condemnation because all of God's condemnation for, for those who have believed and turned to Christ, has been put on Jesus. So there is a sense for those who are in Christ, like you can't be more righteous than you are. 
uh, your, your sins have been totally paid for. And there is a sense within that you are safe. You are okay. But that is not a universal truth for everyone. Now, the, the gospel call is, is for, for all, but, but not you are only in that place when you are in Christ. Because the, the wrath of God fell on Christ for all who would turn to Christ. And those who don't turn to Christ, the wrath of God will fall on them. So this is not true for those who are not in Christ. It's not true for those who don't trust Christ. It's not true for those who don't repent and turn to Christ. And so false prophets and teachers then and today are selling this. Everything's okay. You're fine. I haven't watched this TV show, but it's kind of popular. I'm sure some of y'all have. But have y'all seen uh, The Good Place? I think The Good Place refers to heaven. Um, I, I've seen the opening scene of, of the pilot episode. And, uh, and what happens is the main character dies, uh, and they appear. The, the opening scene of the first episode, they're in a, this person's in a waiting room, right? And as she kind of wakes up in, this kinda, in the afterlife, her eyes open, and there's a big message on the wall in front of her. And the message says this, welcome, everything is fine. That's a good, good news, right? But, but this is what you will find with most false teachers. Look, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jonathan Merritt is, is the son of James Merritt, former um, um, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he's a popular Christian and author. Uh, he has over 70,000 followers on Twitter. I'm not all into that. That just seems like a big number to me. Maybe it's not. It seems a big deal to me. But anyway, he tweeted this last week in light of, I believe the last uh, week of uh, June is Pride Week, like LGBTQ Pride Week. And, uh, and he tweeted this out. He said, as we enter the last week of Pride, may we, may we remember that God loves each of us as we are and not as someone else says we should be. The religious aristocracy doesn't guard the gate to the kingdom of God. All are welcome. Sounds sweet, doesn't it? I mean, it's an attractive message. We're all okay. Don't let the religious aristocracy get you down. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's another somewhat famous uh, author, Jen Hatmaker, uh, very popular, very likable and winsome. Uh, uh, years ago, I think in an attempt to be compassionate towards the LGBTQ community, uh, she went on the record saying that homosexuality can be holy in God's sight. And this past week, there was an article uh, about her daughter who came out as lesbian, uh, apparently a, a while back. Um, and her daughter said that she used to think that God hated her because of her uh, sexuality. And, and, and can't you sympathize with any parent who wants to comfort their child, that, that feels that something's wrong with them. Look, there's a sense where I can sympathize with the desire to comfort a child who's hurting, but she is healing that wound lightly. It's short-sighted compassion to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Look, when someone comes to the place where they, they see themselves as displeasing God, they're getting pretty close to the gospel, Right? Because there's a sense where in order to become a Christian, you need to see that your sin is opposed to God and is offensive to God and, and is worthy of God's punishment. 
And so when someone tiptoes and, and says, I see myself as someone that God would punish, that, that someone who would provoke God's anger, hey, good news, we're getting there, right? Because everybody who becomes a Christian needs to know they are worthy of God's wrath. And that for those who would turn to our gracious God who sent his son to absorb that wrath for us, then they can know God and be reconciled to God. But instead, instead of pointing someone to Christ in the gospel who will take our sins away, they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God loves you just as you are. Don't worry about the bad things you've done or doing or want to do. Peace, peace. Consider instead what Rosaria Butterfield said in response to, to Jen Hatmaker in, in, in 2016, where some of this came out. Uh, Rosaria wrote an article uh, about loving people enough to tell them the truth. Uh, and in the article, she recounts sharing about uh, her conversion out of a lesbian lifestyle at this event she was at. And an older woman approached her afterwards. Uh, and this is what Rosaria wrote about this. She said this, A few years ago, I was speaking at a large church. An older woman waited until the end of the evening and approached me. She told me that she was 75 years old and that she had been married to a woman for 50 years and that she and her partner had children and grandchildren. Then she said something chilling. In a hushed voice, she whispered, I've heard the gospel and I understand that I may lose everything. Why didn't anyone tell me this before? Why did people I love not tell me that I would one day have to choose like this? She says, that's a good question. Why did not one person tell this dear image bearer that she could not have illicit love and gospel peace at the same time? Why didn't anyone throughout all these decades tell this woman that sin and Christ cannot abide together? For the cross never makes itself an ally with the sin it must crush, because Christ took our sin upon himself and paid the ransom for its dreadful cost. Love does not mean to always affirm. It's unloving in an attempt to heal a wound to say that there is no wound. It's unloving to tell someone with cancer that they're okay. It's unloving to say peace when there is no peace. Jeremiah was no doubt seen as harsh and crazy and overly religious in his day. I bet he was a piece of work, right? I bet he was unbearable to be around. I bet people like me would be like, hey, I'm, I love the Lord, but you need to bring it down a little bit, man. You're at about a 10, let's bring it to an eight or a seven. But look, he was on the right side of history. He was doing exactly what God called him to God is faithful to do all that he says he'll do. Like he said in Deuteronomy 28, he was watching over his word to perform it. There was a bowling pot facing away from the north. That means towards the south, towards Jerusalem. There would be no peace for Jerusalem. Babylon would destroy it. This destruction would come on God's people. And you know why this destruction, why this terrible stuff is going to happen to God's people? Because God is faithful. That's why this bad stuff was going to happen to them. So in 587 BC, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and it was unbelievably bad. It was horrific. It, it wasn't like losing a war and there's a peace treaty sign. 
they were overtaken. They were beaten down, captured, brought in, parents and children separated. I wonder what, where my family is, uh, who's, who's alive, who's dead. It was unbelievably bad. So now, here we are in Lamentations. It happened. Babylon came. They took Jerusalem out. So th- my third and last part, part I want to talk about is Lamentations. And next week, I'm going to give more of an introduction to Lamentations itself. Uh, it's a book of poetry. And so there's some things I'd like to point out that I think you'll find really interesting and helpful. But today, we're just going to kind of do a, do a quick dive into Lamentations. And, and I feel like all I can do is just, I'm, I'm just going to walk through Lamentations 1, and I'm just going to point at a few things. Uh, and then we'll, we'll be able to pick up on these themes later throughout the series. So there's three things I want to point out in Lamentations chapter 1. One is just the utter destruction of the city. Two, the sovereignty of God in all this. And three, the lament of Jerusalem. So first, the destruction of the, of the city. Turn back to Lamentations chapter 1. And we're going to read a little bit about uh, the destruction. So Lamentations chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. Lamentations 1, 8 through 10. Jerusalem sinned grievously before she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter her congregation. I just want to unpack these three verses a little bit. Verse 8 Jerusalem is described as a woman who has been publicly shamed. Verse 9, a woman shamed with no one to comfort her. And finally in verse 10, Jerusalem is described as a woman who has not only been shamed, but she has been violated. The imagery there of Jerusalem is of a woman violated. Jerusalem was in an unimaginably bad and horrific place. Secondly, I want to point out that Lamentations makes no excuses for God here. That while, while, while God is not to blame for Jerusalem's sin and rebellion, he is the one that brought this disaster on them. God is sovereign over everything that is happening in Lamentations. Consider these verses in chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away, captives before the foe, because the Lord afflicted her. Look at verse 12 and 13. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. Verse 14 and 15. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He has caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. 
The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You brought the day that you announced. The people of Jerusalem are in a terrible and horrific place. They are on the wrong side of God's faithfulness. It is God who has done this to them. Babylon was simply a tool in his hands. And, and, and lastly, I just want to point out the lament of Jerusalem. Look at verses 18 to 21. This is what it looks like to lament. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the streets, the sword braves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. What do you do when you find yourself in a terrible situation? What do you do when you find yourself in a terrible situation? You're to blame. It's your fault, or at least you had a hand in it. You lament. You, you own all that you can own, and you confess that the Lord is in the right. There was no comfort for Jerusalem on this day. It was only lament. This was not the day of God's grace and love. It was the day of God's vengeance. And God's vengeance is utterly terrifying. Consider Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 and 31 says this, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what do we take away from all of this? One, God is not to be taken lightly. We should not assume upon God's grace and love, and we should not try to heal wounds by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But we should find great comfort that we can be spared the judgment of God, not by being good enough, but by placing our hope that Jesus took God's vengeance for us and it is there and there alone that we can find the mercy of God. And so as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, 24 and 25, what a wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's our only hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we get to this part of your scriptures and we see that you are not to be taken lightly. That while we find so much comfort and encouragement in your grace and your love, 
It is knowing what is due us and due sinners where that grace and love really takes on new meaning, real powerful meaning. And so as we consider this book, Lamentations, when we consider you that you are a consuming fire, that you are not one to be taken lightly, and may that help us to understand and enjoy your great grace and love towards your people. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.